Hi, I'm Amber, and welcome to the Lone Star Keto Podcast. Today, I have Carly Hayes with me, and she is a one of the lead dietitians for NutriSense. Ah, and I just got through doing a, a trial with the CGM, and it was amazing. And I can't wait to talk about Carly. To, talk to Carly about it. <laughs> welcome, Carly. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here. I can't wait to dig into this. Okay. First of all, let's just kind of get some background on you. Like talk about how you got to where you're at. Why did you want to be a dietitian and what kind of diet do you follow? Oh, great questions. Yeah. So like you had mentioned, my name's Carly Hayes. I'm the lead dietitian at NutriSense and um, I've been here kind of since the beginning. So we started back in 2019 and I've been through this wonderful journey the whole time. Uh, I really started, you know, wanting to be a dietitian. My great grandmother uh, was a dietitian and she lived to be 101. And I just thought this has to, there's gotta be something to this, right? Like focusing on your nutrition has got to play some role in this wonderful life that she's led. So she was really my focus and my inspiration. And when I started going to school, I just really became in love with the science behind nutrition and how mm -hmm. this could help everyone. This mattered to every single person. So I love helping people. And I think that's what really led me down this path. And so my first, you know, couple of jobs were just in a general outpatient setting. So I love working one-on-one -on -one with people and that's where I thrive. So that's kind of where my initial path led me, but I started to get a little bit frustrated with some of the pitfalls of traditional dietetics counseling positions, right? And I think we can probably all resonate with some of this, but what I started to see, right, I was seeing, you know, people that had just been diagnosed with diabetes or prediabetes or other things too, like celiac disease or um, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, you name it, I was working with it. Um, and I loved what I did, but I noticed that I was the last referral that these people were sent to, right? So they'd seen their doctor, they'd seen, uh, you know, Jenny Craig, they'd seen all these other places trying to seek help, but the referral to the nutrition expert was last on the list. And so that just seemed like a disconnect. You know, if, if we really want to make changes early on, hopefully before that diagnosis, then why isn't nutrition the first thing we're addressing? Why isn't our lifestyle, that whole picture, why is, it, is that not our first focus? So um, I started to look for alternatives, things that maybe would bring this prevention aspect to the forefront. And that's when I started to you know, listen to a lot of podcasts where these CGMs were being used for preventative health. Um, and when I say CGMs, I mean continuous glucose monitors. So without access to one of those myself at the time, I just started pricking my own finger, learning more about my own glucose and seeing, oh, wow, there's some things I, you know, myself, a healthy nutrition focused person could do to change and to improve. This has to be something that everyone thinks about. So uh, enter NutriSense and that's what we're doing, right? We're monitoring glucose as that other vital sign to help identify areas where we can improve, where we can optimize our diet, and all other aspects of our lifestyle to prevent disease and fine tune our diet based on what our own bodies are telling us. So it's been a wild and really exciting ride. I can bet. Oh my gosh. I'm actually jealous of what you do because I think that is so incredibly important. And being that I did do the CGM, I, I just finished it up. Was it last week, the mid, mid last week? 
And I had such an incredibly um, positive experience with the whole thing from, you know, putting on this to getting my information to working with my dietitian, who I love, by the way, love you, Catherine, you were awesome. And the other thing I found very cool about y'all is that it was not looked down upon to be keto, low carb, carnivore, that you're not told, oh, well, you really need to get those carbs in there because, you know, you're, 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 you know, (laughs) whatever. And so I really appreciated that. Well, one thing we've noticed from seeing, and I, I do think we have this unique opportunity where we're seeing the data from thousands of people. Um, and what we're noticing is the traditional recommendations from you know, certain organizations of 45 to 65% of your diet should be carbohydrates. Those don't work for most people, right? Like unless you are a endurance athlete, unless you are burning through that glucose all the time, mm-hmm. that might not be best suited for you. So the approach that we found to be helpful is, first of all, you know your body better than anyone else and you know how what, what makes you feel best. And if you don't know, that's where this data can come in and help. And that can point you in the right way. So we're using that data, not that dogma, right? To help guide you based on what your body is telling you, not some textbook, not some article you read online, but using your own body to dictate what's right for you. And so we'll support, we'll support whatever makes you feel good. Yeah. And seriously, y'all, it was a really good experience. I, I've always been a little bit hesitant about dietitians because of how they're trained you know, you know what I'm talking about. And, and it's, it's hard for me to trust. And because I I've been given so much bad information that for, for me, for my body, maybe for somebody else, it was okay. But, you know, so it kind of makes me question a lot. So for me to be, you know, that happy about working with a dietitian and she really knew her stuff. She gave me suggestions. She kind of broke everything down for me. And I absolutely loved that. And it was so helpful. And so that's why I wanted you here. So you can help break down some of what this monitor does and what your particular company does. Um, so let's go ahead and start off with like, what do you get when, when this arrives? What is this? And, and, and what is the process? Let's just go through that really quick. Yes. Great place to start. So yes, when you sign up, you, um, are shipped a CGM sensor. So back to that, that's a continuous glucose monitor. So I think one important layer to lay down as a foundation is when we think about glucose, we're always thinking about a finger prick device, right? We've probably known someone that has to measure their glucose before Mm -hmm. they eat or after they eat. And usually that's to, um, you know, dose dose their medication. And that's typically associated with diabetes. But what we found, right, is that glucose can be this great vital sign for anyone, not just with someone with diabetes. So that glucose is kind of telling us how our metabolism is working. And so when you order online from NutriSense, you receive that continuous glucose monitor. And I actually have one right here. So you get these, these are the the main components. You have a sensor and then you have an applicator. Common uh, misconception is that the needle, which is a large needle, sticks in your skin. It does not, it's only there for application to apply this little sensor. And it really is small, you know, about the size of a quarter, it sticks on your arm. um, And there's just a tiny little microfilament that stays in your body. And so what that little microfilament does is it measures what your glucose is at all times of the day. So not just 
a little finger prick, you get a snapshot. You're getting this time lapse of all your glucose data 24 seven for 14 days. So with that, you're getting so much more data points. I think one thing to think about is if you're doing a finger prick that does tell you good information. So mm -hmm. if you do not want to use this continuous glucose monitor, that's okay. Maybe measure your glucose from a finger prick. I would just say that's a little bit more tedious because to get the full picture, you have to prick yourself a couple times a day minimum to get some good information. But with the CGM, it's one prick, 14 days of data, and then you get to see how all the influencers of glucose are affecting you specifically. So that's what comes with the program, but you also get our app uh, where you'll see your glucose and you can kind of log your diet and your exercise, your stress, your sleep, all those things, which I know we'll get into, but you also have access to dietitians. So you had Catherine, I'm a dietitian there as well. And I think you're right. Sometimes when people hear dietitian, they, they cringe, right? Oh, this person's going to be a, you know, nutrition police. They're just going to tell me what I can and can't have. They're going <laughs> to give me yeah, exactly. A, you know, blanket stay like cookie cutter diet plan. We're a little different at NutriSense. Like I said, we're listening to what your body is telling us and using actual data to guide what we recommend. And so like you had mentioned, we'll do experiments so we can try different foods or different changes to see how your body responds. And usually that will help you fine tune your diet to do what's right for you. So um, it doesn't hurt. That's another question I think mm -hmm. I hear a lot of is, uh, this needle, right? Doesn't this hurt? And I always hear how surprised everyone is that it's just a quick little pinch. It hurts less than a finger prick device. Is that, was that your experience? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And when I saw the little needle, I was like, oh, okay. All right. I can do this. No, not a big deal, but yeah, it's going to kind of pinch. No, I put it on, it snapped and I was kind of like, whoa, wow, really? Now I will say I did feel a little bit more on this arm because I was using my left hand to put on my right arm. And next time I'll just move it down on this arm. But I mean, it didn't hurt still, but this one, I didn't even think the thing was on. I mean, I looked down and it was attached and I was like, I don't think it, I, I, I don't think the little filament thing went in there. And so when I tapped it and it, you know, everything, you know, did what it was supposed to do. I was like, wow. But I actually did feel this one a little bit, but it was not painful. It was not pain. I just felt something where this one, I felt nothing, but it was this weird application because I'm like left-hand dumb. So <laughs> it just doesn't work. But and yeah. I found that sometimes people prefer one side over the other as well. So it's just finding the right spot. Sometimes you feel it more than others, but typically not as scary as it looks. The no, it's not. The application is often a little more <laughs> scary. Yeah. That is, that's funny you said that because after I felt that I was like, I think everything worked right, but I did not feel anything attach or stick in. And when I removed it and it was there and I kind of like, you know, kind of took my fingernail and I was like, dang, this thing is stuck. So <laughs> I hear you. Uh, but yeah, so I think you get kind of the full package there. You get the CGM, you get the app, you get the dietitian. And I think that's where some of the value comes in, right? So you're getting that data, but you're also getting a signal within the noise. One thing to consider is that glucose, like we've talked about already, is so multifactorial. So there's so many different factors to consider when you're looking at your data that sometimes it can be hard to know which way to go with that data. And that's where our team of experts really just helps point you in the right direction and help you kind of interpret and optimize that glucose based on your goals. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like I said, it, it was very valuable to me and I'm just going to say, and, and plug, I don't care what you want to call it. I think that this was one of the most valuable things I did 
for me. Number one, I wanted to know, is my diet really good for me? I've been carnivore for two years, keto two years prior to that, but you always in the back of your mind, because you hear all this noise, you know, is it really the best thing for your body, my body, whatever. And I feel extremely comfortable now knowing that my diet seems to be working pretty darn well for me. And I have some issues going on and I feel like now I can rule that out. So my diet's good rule it out. Now I have to dig deeper. So that was very valuable to me. And I know some people say, oh, it's expensive, but what you don't understand is everything you're getting and what you can potentially learn from it. And it was worth it. It was absolutely hundred percent worth it to me. Yes. Oh, I love to hear that. And I, I, I completely agree. It does. It is an expense, right? But it's an expense yes. that you're paying for the long run. And one thing I always tell people is you don't have to log glucose forever. You don't have to track glucose forever. But if you don't measure, you don't know. So it's a great way just to get insight into what's going on. I always think of it as kind of like a peer inside of your body, like what's going on. Um, so some people will do it for just two weeks and then every you know six months, maybe they'll check again just to stay on top of things or if they change something up in their diet and they want to know, you know, is this working for me? We have so much bio individuality in each and every one of us. So a food mm -hmm. that works well for you might not work well for me. And so testing that out is a really great way to make sure you're doing everything you can for your nutrition. And that doesn't take forever, but it is something we should all do at least once in our lives. I think so. I really, really do. I think it's so valuable. Okay. Now here's a question. And I have actually seen this on some forums and it kind of irritated me a little bit. Um, I've heard some people say, well, if you're not diabetic, you have no business wearing a continuous glucose monitor. You are taking away a tool that somebody really needs. Can right. you kind of discuss that a little bit from your point of view? Yeah, I, we've seen that a lot on some of our posts and um, it breaks my heart because I never want to feel or for people in the type one diabetes community to feel like we're taking valuable resources mm -hmm. from them. But what we found is that this tool, right, can be a really helpful prevention tool. So, you know, there's all these statistics out there and you can kind of pull your favorite, but, you know, 88% of the population is not metabolically healthy. Um, there's even other ones, you know, one in three people have prediabetes, 80% of them don't know it, right? So I think there's a lot of people that this technology can benefit for them. Um, and what our hope is, is that by providing this knowledge, this data to people that would benefit from it, the demand will go up for this product and the price will come down. So we're hoping that this over time can be something that's available over the counter for every single person. And it doesn't have to require a, you know, really hard to get prescription from a physician or um, insurance isn't, you know, charging a lot of money for these tools. Because I think if we can bring awareness to the power behind this tool, then we can make it accessible for everyone. Um, so that's our goal. Um, and yeah, I've seen that too. It, it breaks my heart, but I, I hope that that's the way we're perceived. Yeah. yeah. Prevention. I mean, why do we wait for a problem to happen and to where it's so far gone when you could have prevented that? I think if more people saw really what that food they're, they're eating that they think is just so great and so healthy, according to the food pyramid and the government and, you know, the alphabet agencies and et cetera, if they really saw what that did and they they understood what it means when you have glucose, you know, spikes and crashes and all that mess. 
it would be a game changer. I know some people, they're not changing no matter what, but it, it would at least bring awareness to where maybe they would do a little more research into it. Maybe they would be a little more willing to, you know, kind of do some things to prevent issues. Um, hello, the issue we're dealing with right now. If we were in better metabolic health, there wouldn't be a fear, you know? 100%. And I always like to think of it as there's three main benefits to CGMs, to prevention, all those things. And yes, like you're mentioning, the first one is the early identification of those little yellow flags, right? So often we wait for this big red flag. Oh, your fasting glucose is over hundred. Oh, your A1C is uh, 6.1, right? We're waiting for that diagnosis. But the reality is that all these conditions or a large majority of these conditions start to have early little warning signs years or even decades before you have that diagnosis. And there's an estimate that about 80% of chronic conditions that are related to metabolic conditions, right, are preventable through lifestyle diet interventions, 80%, right? And we're not capitalizing on that. And that's just because we don't, we're not using the tools that we have available. So I think that's first thing, right? We can identify mm -hmm. the little yellow flags. But the second thing you had mentioned is we can identify how your body's responding to food. So you might be eating uh, sweet potatoes, thinking that they're going, they're great for you, right? My friend told me they're wonderful. I should probably eat more of them. But the reality is you might be spiking from that food and you have no idea, right? So by identifying that and changing just some small things, first of all, you're going to feel better, right? Because those high glucose spikes usually lead to energy shifts, not feeling so great throughout the day, but also you're going to lower that glucose over time, which can improve your metabolic health. And then lastly, and I think this is almost the most important one, is real-time data. So when we think about improving our metabolic health or improving our diet, what's the, what's the metric we monitor? Our weight, right? And the reality is it's slow to change. It's a difficult metric to move. The scale is very, very stubborn. And so uh -huh. if that's the only thing that we're monitoring, that's not very sustainable. That's not very motivating. We're seeing it drop very, very slowly. And that's not telling our, you know, I need quick instant gratification brains that we could keep going. That's telling us what we're doing isn't working. This isn't worth it. I'm going to give up. But when you see that data <laughs> immediately in your face, okay, when I eat this food, I have a spike. When I eat this food, I don't have a spike. That instant gratification, that instant motivation is there. And that's more sustainable to make those long-term changes. So I think that's more than anything. You have that you know, motivation in your pocket to keep your good decisions up regardless of what the scale tells you. Uh, absolutely. And like I said, this was really eye-opening even for me for you know somebody who's been very diet conscious for or nutritional conscious, should I say, um, for four years, extremely low carb. And there were things that surprised me. And so let's go over some of the measurements that we use, you know, in tracking your glucose. There's some terminology and it was a little confusing for me. I'll, I'll be honest, I, uh, Catherine helped me, you know, work through some of that because I wasn't exactly sure. The one thing that gets me the most is the area under the curve. What exactly is that? What is a uh, something to look for, uh, whether or not a food is okay for your body or not. What, what are the metrics for that? 
That's a really, really good question. And I do think it can get a little confusing. It's a lot easier when you're seeing the data and the numbers, but just to kind of go over that area under the curve, that's in terms of your postprandial glucose values. So when we're looking at glucose, uh, we're looking at three main metrics, right? Your fasting glucose. So if you go to a doctor's office, this is probably what they're going to test. If you're testing with a glucose meter, this is probably what you're testing. And this is exactly as it sounds. It's your glucose after fasting. So no food for at least eight hours. That's that one snapshot in time. Um, that's your fasting glucose. The second is your postprandial glucose or your after meal glucose. And so you know, a lot of the research that we've seen shows that this is one of the biggest cardiovascular uh, risk factors that we can monitor for. One of the biggest metabolic health uh, metrics to monitor for is your after meal responses. And this is where that area under the curve and also your delta values come in play. So when you're looking at your response to a meal, there are three things you're really looking for. So the first one is how high your glucose is going. So your peak glucose value. And from the research that we've seen, we're really trying to keep that glucose under 140 most of the time. Keep in mind, this is all about repetition, right? I'm not concerned with the occasional spike outside of that range. It's really about how frequently you're getting outside of that range. Um, so if it's every single meal, that's a sign that we're doing something wrong. But if it's you know once in a blue moon, I'm not as concerned with that. Uh, so we want that peak to be low. The second is the delta value. So when you think of delta, and this is where it can kind of get confusing, so I'll try and uh, simplify it a little bit, but that's the difference between your peak, your, your highest value, and your lowest value after that meal. That just tells you like, how, how much did my glucose shift when I ate this food? And so when we're looking at those shifts, bigger deltas or bigger shifts in glucose are really tightly correlated to changes in energy, changes in mood, anxiety, just not feeling great cravings, um, drops in energy. So we're trying to minimize that, that increase, that delta value, ideally below 50 points. So um, if you're logging your meals in the NutriSense app, it will calculate that for you, which is really helpful because then you can kind of see, okay, these meals went well, these meals were a little higher and you can tweak some things to, to improve that. And then last of those, so we also want glucose to come back down between about two to three hours after the meal. So here we're looking at how quickly your insulin, which is released in response to a meal, is bringing glucose back down. And that's just helping us stay kind of in that tightly controlled range for homeostasis. So peak is low, small shifts, quick return down to baseline. Now, when you put all those together, that's when you see that area under the curve or AUC. And the way I like to think about area under the curve is literally like surface area. So if you're looking at, it kind of looks like a bell curve, right? Mm -hmm. From glucose, it's that total area under there, that area above the mm -hmm. lowest point in the curve. And so you think about that as surface area. If you need more, uh, if you think about it as tiling to a floor, right? If you need more tiling to fill that floor, that's more insulin that's required to bring that glucose oh. down. Um, if you need less, right, your insulin is not needed as much. You don't have as much surface area under there. I think sometimes mm. that helps me visualize it a little bit better. I'm a very visual person. Um, but ideally, we want that to be small because that's meaning that we're not needing a ton of insulin to return to that homeostatic range. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. Actually, that makes a lot of sense. I like that visual. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if a meal is taking you a little higher than that, but it's returning down quickly, that could also have a high area under the curve because there's a lot of surface area under that really high spike. Mm. If you have a smaller spike, but it's taking a long time to return back to baseline, that could have the same exact area under the curve because again, it's taking longer. So there's more area under there. So we can look at these and say, all right, I had a really high area under the curve. What can I do to this meal to improve that? And some things we can try, we can try different types of food, altering the portion size. You know, we can try different times of the day when we might be more sensitive to insulin. So there's a lot of different strategies that we can play with to optimize our response. So optimize that after meal glucose value. And that's where we come in because that's where the experimentation is really fun and can help us identify the perfect diet for us. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And for the first week, I kind of did my typical diet. I ate what I would eat on a normal, you know, normal week. And throughout the whole experiment for the whole entire month, my average, I forgot what the median, basically the Delta, the average of the Delta, whatever that I can't remember the word they actually use was 11. Oh. That's with experiments. Oh, that's amazing. So I, I was very happy with that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, mine, you know, kind of stayed like right between, you know, within 10 to 15 points yeah. or whatever you want to call it. I, I call it points just because it's easier to visualize that the change. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that brings us to the third metric that we're monitoring for, which is your standard deviation or your glycemic variability. So that's, I think that's what it was. Yeah. Is that what it was? Okay. Your SD. Yep. That's a, that's an optimal standard deviation. So when we're looking at glycemic variability, again, big fancy word for how much is your glucose varying from that midline, right? We want your highs and your lows to be pretty close together. We don't want these huge swings. Again, in the short term, this is going to lead to, man, I'm riding the blood sugar roller coaster. I'm having these highs and these lows. In the long term, this is what can lead to um, oxidative damage, inflammation, and then ultimately metabolic dysfunction, right? Mm. So not in the short term, but over time, a long period of this mm. pattern can lead to those disease states that we refer to. So when we're looking at our glucose metrics, that's one of the most important ones to monitor for. And it's really hard to do so without a continuous glucose monitor, because you're just kind of piecing together these small little data points. But when you see all this data, you can see how much your glucose is fluctuating throughout the day. And so when we're looking at standard deviation, we want it to be less than 20, but less than 14 is ideal or considered optimal. And so no carnivore <laughs> in that range, uh, which is yeah. perfect. I hope that means your energy levels are really great throughout the day. Oh yeah. I don't, I, I haven't had an issue with that. Well, when I first transitioned, I did a little bit for a couple of months, but after that, Past four years, I've been good, <laughs> really good. But I have a question though. Um, when you're specifically talking like carnivore, may maybe some keto, uh, the other end of the spectrum, whatever, where when I was keto, my blood sugar, and this is weird, I know, it was between 48 and 68, pretty much where it stayed. And I felt good, really, really good with that low blood glucose. I know some people would be hypoglycemic and having a cow. I felt awesome. And sometimes I would take it again because I'm like, dang, shouldn't I be just like passed out on the floor or something? But it was good for me. Okay. But then after two years of carnivore, 
And I didn't really test my blood very much. I tested a couple of times for ketones just out of curiosity, but it, it, I just didn't want to worry about it. So I stopped doing it. So I didn't really have any clue. My point is, I now know this, that my baseline glucose, my fasting baseline glucose is 90. Okay. And that disturbed me because I was like, wait a minute, why is that? Because my whole baseline went chunk like this. However, within this, it only moves like this much, a little bitty, you know, between, you know, dang near 10 points. That's all it moves. So even though my fasting baseline is high or I consider it high, um, I'm, I'm not moving much from that. What's your take? So my first thought is, this started happening after you had been very, very low carb for a longer mm -hmm. period of time. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So a lot of times we do see this. We see this a lot of time when people have been keto, very strict keto, or even carnivore, just very low to no carbohydrates for prolonged periods of time. And that's usually around, you know, one to three or more years. And so mm -hmm. we'll start to see that fasting glucose kind of creep up gradually. And so a lot of times, I mean, rightly so, people are pretty concerned with that, right? Everything else looks good. Why is my fasting glucose 90? I know it needs to be, you know, 70 to 90. What's going on yeah. here? It used to be so much lower, especially when I first started, you know, low carb or keto. And so what happens is our bodies are very, very adaptive. They're very smart. They get used to no glucose coming in. So they're going to adapt to that. And so what happens is they usually start to prefer ketones over glucose for fuel right? So they just start to get used to having less glucose. And what happens is insulin levels go down, our insulin sensitivity goes down. And so we call this physiological insulin resistance. And what this means is it's, it's not actual insulin, insulin resistance, and it's an adaptive response to the fuel that we're providing for our bodies, right? So our bodies are like, hey, you're not going to give me any glucose, I guess I don't need that, I'm going to adapt, and I'm going to move on and do great even even without it. And so what happens is the body will start to reserve a little bit of glucose that it keeps in the blood all the time for organs that rely solely on glucose, like the brain. And so we'll start to see fasting glucose slowly creep up because the body's kind of keeping it there for that brain. Um, and we'll also see higher responses to carbohydrates because again, we're not used to having carbs in our diet. So our bodies are like, wait, you know, if we have carbs suddenly after one to three years without many carbs at all, we're not as efficient at breaking those carbohydrates down. So it's what, what is this glucose that you're giving me? I'm only used to using ketones at this point. So we'll have these larger responses to glucose. And so we can, first question that I always hear is, is this harmful? Is this bad? Should I be concerned? And the short answer is we don't know yet, right? There's not a whole lot of research out there on this, but the research that we do have shows that this really isn't concerning as long as all your other metabolic metrics are in line. If your postprandial glucose is looking great, your glycemic variability, your average glucose is in a really good spot, so below 100, um, and your other metrics, so HDL, triglycerides, your waist circumference, all those other factors are in line we're not as concerned with fasting glucose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. That's good to know. That was concerning to me, but I will say also this, uh, something I found interesting is I, I, I said that I felt perfectly fine with a glucose of 48, which sounds crazy, but I felt great. Right. Okay. Well, after doing the CGM, 
I noticed there was a couple of experiences, we'll talk about this later, how, how it affected me, but two instances where I was actually awake when my blood glucose dropped below 80. Whenever it dropped below 80, I felt crappy. Like I felt shaky, weak, and nauseous. Hmm. Was this recently or? Yeah, yeah, just with the CGM. And, but you know, I don't, I don't eat carbs and have a spike and then a crash. So, and, and the other thing that got me was a hot bath. Oh, yes. Yeah. It spiked and then it dropped really low. Like that was my lowest drop out of everything was after that hot bath. And I got out of the bathtub and I was like, Ooh, whoa, you know, like dizzy and a little, not as nauseous as I was with the honey. That just really blew me away as far as how I felt, but it got below that 80 mark and I did not feel good. Right. And I think sometimes when you have this, this baseline glucose in a certain range, our body becomes more sensitive to when it drops a little bit outside of that range. So we kind of get into this, you know, very, very steady glucose where we feel really great. And then our body becomes more susceptible to when it drops outside of that homeostatic range. So there's a lot of, you know, research that, you know, 82 to 88 is kind of the best glucose to be in that fasting glucose to be in. And sometimes when you drop a little lower, you feel those symptoms. So it's really individual. And that's where we're always looking at how do you feel? That means more than any number on a scale to me, because I have a lot of people that drop, like you had mentioned, below 70, below 50, and they feel fine. And if you feel okay, that's what I'm most concerned with. If you are dropping below 55 and you have symptoms, yeah. we need to address and, and kind of look at the root of the issue and see what might be going on. And we do this a lot, right? Some people that are going through menopause, some people that might have hypothyroidism or um, maybe have undergone bariatric surgery will have these drops and they feel really cruddy. And sometimes these drops, like you had mentioned, are not below 70. So they don't feel like they should feel terrible, but they do. And so I'm always listening to how's your body feel? How do you feel? How's your energy level? Those are the, the important metrics to me. And then we'll take those numbers into account aside with that. I like that. That makes more sense to me because like, if you're feeling fine, you know, but when you're not, that, that was just bizarre to me. Cause I was like, okay, it seems like my blood glucose wants to be 80 and above. Yeah. That's the sweet spot. You know, yeah, I guess so. But you know, still I'm like, but it was so low on keto. What the heck, you know, but I do understand about after being low carb for a prolonged period of time that that's not overly unusual, but uh, well, I guess we'll see what happens uh, with, if anybody ever researches that I kind of doubt it. And there are, so there are some studies though, that show, you know, you know, we had mentioned, if you have carbohydrates, you can have these larger responses, but there's a lot of studies that show uh, and in fact, you know, if you do an oral glucose tolerance test, which it sounds like you did a honey, honey test, which is, uh, but so if, if people do, people have been keto or very, very low carb for a prolonged period of time, they can actually fail an oral glucose tolerance test and be diagnosed as diabetes or pre-diabetes. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. And Great. so there's a lot of research that shows if you prime your body, if you help the body kind of learn to accept carbohydrates as fuel again, usually about 100 to 150 grams of carbs per day, three days leading up to that test, you can improve your response. You're not going to fail it. So this, wow. shows, right, that this can be reversed. This isn't a permanent thing. This is a temporary adaptation that our body is doing. So usually if someone comes to me and they want to, you know, 
help with this, kind of lower that fasting glucose, address that physiological insulin resistance or adaptive glucose sparing, as some people call it, we can do that. We can start to strategically add small amounts of carbohydrates around exercise when you're very insulin sensitive. Um, you know, if you don't have carbohydrates or you don't want to add carbohydrates back to your diet ever, this might not be something you need to do, right? You don't need that efficiency to break down glucose. But if you do, if you want to have that ability and be metabolically flexible, then we can definitely work on that over time, kind of with like a cyclical carb add-in approach with a carb that you enjoy or that your body tolerates well. So that's one thing that I found really helpful as well as really, really working on insulin sensitivity. So more strength training to kind of build up those glucose stores and that peripheral insulin sensitivity and also earlier eating, kind of eating in that circadian rhythm, insulin sensitive times. So there are strategies to help with that um, if someone's struggling with that. And that's one thing that I work with people with a lot of times. You, you mentioned eating at certain times. I will say that there was, I don't know, maybe three or four times where I ended up eating later. I was just busy. It was not something that I tried to do or want to do. And I, I never really thought that it affected me really that much. But I will say when those times when I ate later, and I'm talking like 7.30 at night, 7.30 to 8, it wasn't even like it was 10 o'clock. My blood glucose through the night was a little higher. I'm not talking way jacked up, but it was higher. Right. Oh my gosh. This is probably so, you know, we're always talking about bioindividuality and everyone's so different. This is one of the few things that I would say is pretty universal. And I am with you. This was my biggest struggle to this day. I, I have to work on this every single day. I you know grew up and we just ate late. I was used to that. And mm -hmm. when I had my first CGM, that was really in my face that, oh, wow, this is not going to work for you. So um, as you mentioned, our circadian rhythm, so kind of how our bodies um, hormones are secreted. Insulin is no different, right? So what that means is we have more insulin sensitivity with a daylight hour. So earlier in the day and our lowest insulin sensitivity is in the middle of the night. So yeah, meals consumed later in the evening, even seven, eight o'clock uh, for some people can have a higher fasting overnight glucose value just because first of all, we're less insulin sensitive. So our body's going to respond higher to those foods but also we're usually less sed we're more sedentary in the evenings, right? I don't know about you, but that's my relaxation time. So we're not burning much glucose, right? Yeah, that makes sense. I was, you know, you hear that, but I always kind of, eh, whatever, not, not that I tried to eat later, whatever, but after seeing that, that was a really good takeaway for me, for sure. I mean, I, I try to eat earlier, but I'm definitely going to try to eat earlier, you know, just, just kind of help my body out a little bit. Um, let's talk about my honey response. And the reason why I decided to do honey, two reasons. Number one, it was a huge thing in the carnivore com uh, community right now. You know, ooh, carnivore, you know, includes honey. No, it doesn't. It's good for you. No, it's not. Uh, uh. Well, my whole thing is I believe that it's a very, you know, individual thing. There are, however, I think more people are like me and probably really shouldn't have it. But um, if you're, you know, really good insulin sensitive and you're active and you're a male that's 30 years old or whatever, you know, you could probably get away with that quicker. Anyway, I decided, okay, I'm going to try that. And I used to have it for lunch. Oh, good gosh. Every day for years mixed in with my peanut butter and put on some low calorie whole wheat toast. 
that was my lunch. Okay, so I was curious. I could only do a tablespoon. That was it. That's all I could do. Gagged it down. It was so not even okay for me. And yes, it was raw. Yes, it was local. And yes, it was isolated in between meals, enough time before and after to where it shouldn't be affected. So people ask me that, but okay. So just all out there. Okay. This was the only thing that I tested that went above 140. And I want to say it was like 144. So that's not gosh awful, but it did. That was the only thing that peaked above the 140, that kind of limit. And my Delta was either 50 or 60. And then my area under the curve was whichever one, I want to say it was like 60 Delta, 50 area under the curve. Yep. And after that, you know, it spiked, it was a nice little chunk high and then it was pretty narrow going down, but it was pretty chunk. And my blood glucose was pretty low at the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. And I started feeling nauseous, like nauseous and a little bit dizzy. And so I, you know, tapped my little uh, CGM monitor there to kind of see. And sure enough, that's a shook, bunk. And I was, you know, kind of more down at the bottom right there. And I was like, well, no wonder. So. Uh, yes. And that's something we see a lot of the time. So we're always encouraging people if they're curious about assessing their insulin sensitivity or their glucose tolerance, how much glucose they can tolerate at once doing a test like that. So testing pure glucose or honey or whatever fruit juice for some people just to kind of see their response. But really, yes, what we're looking for, for an oral glucose tolerance test is a peak usually below 180 for that. So it's really good that you stayed below, um, much below that, but it sounds like that's all you could tolerate. And so um, I think probably a big reason for that is that your body's just not accustomed to processing that really dense, quick acting sugar anymore, right? It's like, what did you just put inside of me? And so what happens, right? You spike up really quickly and then liquid carbohydrates or really, really um, quick acting sugars like honey or like glucose are absorbed very, very quickly in the body. So what happens is your insulin brought it down really, really quickly. And sometimes our bodies can release a little bit more insulin than it's needed. And then that glucose mm. will plummet down. And then we start to feel really mm. cruddy. And that's that blood sugar roller coaster, right? You have, and it's so interesting to think people are drinking sodas all the time and probably having this response all day long and not understanding mm. why they're feeling so terrible. Um, I think about that all the time, but glucose plummeted down and your body said, I feel like I feel terrible. So it's not used to that really quick bolus of sugar and that quick digesting carbohydrate. So um, it's not a fun test to do, but it is a, a really, really insightful experiment to try with your own data. Yeah, I, I think because it is that pure sugar, it is a good one to try. And I will say I have no desire to ever have it again <laughs> because number one, it was so not palatable to me anymore. Yeah. And it... And I'll, I'll, I'll list another experiment that I did, but um, it, it just didn't do for me what it used to do. I mean, I'm telling you what, I used to have two tablespoons mixed with peanut butter every day. And I'm not kidding you when I say that. Oh my goodness. Oh, to have a CGM back then. Wow. And then for breakfast, I had oatmeal and a banana and orange juice and skim milk. 
I was healthy. And that was considered a healthy breakfast. Uh Uh-huh. It sure was. I can just imagine. Um, Catherine kind of mentioned me doing that experiment and I thought about it, but I was like, I have absolutely no desire, none, zero, no desire to do that because I don't want the fiber. I don't want, I, I will never eat that again. It's not something I'll ever eat again. I was curious about the honey just because it's such a big controversy, controversial thing in our community. That's the only reason I went there with that one. But what I did try was the banana. And again, it was isolated. It was a small one. Um, I didn't feel bad after it. And it didn't, uh, I want to say it went up to like, I don't know, maybe 127. I wish I had my papers here. I meant to bring it in here. I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't, you know, horrible. It, It did not go above the 140. And it was a little bit slower coming down. It didn't have that huge, you know, chunk. It just kind of went down. But I want to say it was somewhere like Delta 30 area under the cover 40 or vice versa. So it wasn't like horrible. And I did not feel bad afterwards. Didn't feel bad. And so that's just a, a really good example of how, first of all, bananas are, you know, everyone thinks that bananas are such a high glycemic fruit. No one should eat them. But really what we've seen is people respond differently to them, right? There's that genetic yeah. component. There's your microbiome differences. You know, we respond to foods differently. So it sounds like you responded pretty well to that. And so it's a whole food versus that really quick acting sugar. Yeah. So just yeah. that small difference is so interesting to see how your body processes it, processes it a little bit different and a little bit better. And those are some yeah. things you can experiment with too. Um, one thing that I would be curious about is if you did add like peanut butter, you know, as that protein, that fat to kind of blunt that response, if you'd have an even smaller kind of shift in glucose as well. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Um, And I will say it did not satisfy me. It didn't like, I used to love bananas. I had a banana every day with my oatmeal, no joke. And I, one of the first things I said before starting keto is, oh, I can never get up my, give up my banana. I haven't had one in four years until I just did this experiment. So um, there you go. But it didn't, you know, bring back what I remember just loving about bananas. And it was the the rightness. I liked all of that kind of thing. It just didn't give me anything to make me want to have it again. However, my response, I was like, if I did want one every now and then, it wouldn't be this horrible thing like I originally had thought. Um, but again, it was isolated. It wasn't with, you know, anything else. So it would be interesting to know that, but I did do a potato experiment where I ate my filet first. So my protein, and then I had a plain baked potato after I finished all of my steak. Cause I've heard that that makes a difference. I don't know. I actually didn't ever do it where I ate the potato by itself or, or bef- first, I didn't do that. Yeah. It just didn't work for me. I didn't want to do it that way because it just ruined my meal. So yeah. And what I found was it was pretty similar to the banana. Actually, I want to say it might've been just a little bit higher than the banana. It wasn't horrible, but it was with protein. So, you know. Yeah, definitely. And that's something we've seen just kind of as a really easy strategy that people can apply to improve their glycemic response right? When we're breaking down foods, when our body's digesting foods, carbohydrates are that quick burning energy. You know, that's why they're easy accessible, but they, we burn through them very, very quickly. So sometimes having that protein first, we've also seen this with non-starchy veggies. So low carb veggies, having that first can help blunt your glucose response. And we've seen this over and over again, and such a cool experiment to do because 
that's a really quick, easy thing you can apply to your everyday life to help improve your glycemic you know, variability, your postprandial responses. Um, and that's just something we should all be doing. But um, I think that you make a really good point is that you can see how you respond and you can kind of weigh whether you want that food in your diet or not. You know, if you had that larger response to honey and it's not worth it to you, easier to let it go, right? <laughs> I had that same one with a, um, my mom makes these chocolate covered pretzels every year for Christmas. And I'm like, I have my CGM on, I'm going to try it out. I'm going to see if I can do all these like tweaks to make myself, you know, have a good response. No matter what I tried, I spiked, <laughs> I spiked, I spiked. Oh, wow. So you have to weigh, like you could have this food. The occasional spike is nothing to be concerned with. We want you to enjoy your life and to be able to include fun foods. But for some people, for that food particularly, it's not worth it to me. So I'm able to kind of make that decision based on my body, based on my data, not based on the calories or what someone told me that I should or shouldn't eat, just based on what my body is doing and for my own metabolic health. So I think that's the most empowering thing, right? You can use it is. information from your own body. So I love that you're doing that. Yeah, I, it was so valuable. I can't say that enough, y'all, seriously. It was valuable to me. And um, one thing that I thought was kind of surprising that you might, I, I don't know, maybe you do or not, you see enough of these. Um, there's this dessert. And honestly, it's the only dessert I could even give a crap about. Um, and it was my favorite before I ever started keto or anything. This is, I'm a very chocolate person, but I want it chocolate. I don't want this milk chocolate. I don't want this overly sweet chocolate. I want it dark, dark. Yeah. And this is a flourless, excuse me, flourless tort. So it's very um, low sugar, but it does have sugar and chocolate and pretty much heavy, heavy whipping cream. And that's, if I'm not mistaken, that's pretty much the ingredients, maybe vanilla and, you know, something along those right. lines. But um, I had that isolated again, not you know, one thing after another. So it's isolated. It moved less than the potato or the banana. It was like pretty darn low. I want to say the Delta was like 17. Oh, wow. I can't remember what the area under the curve was. I want to say maybe 27. I'm not exactly sure, but it was like nothing. And I'm like, okay, that might happen every now and then <laughs> if I just really feel the need, you know, and most of the time I don't, I could care less. I couldn't, I couldn't finish it though. That's the thing. Um, so I probably, and I forced myself to eat half of it because I wanted to get a good reading just to kind of, so, but I don't think I would ever eat more than half of it anyway. I mean, it, it's, you know, pretty small slice, I mean, it's like, you know, it was small, but you know, the, the point is, I don't think I could eat that much anyway. So the result was good to see, but if I wanted, you know, my birthday or something, and I was just in the mood, whatever. I don't see a big deal with that. And, and it doesn't trigger me to eat more. And, you know, this, uh, some people have issues like when they experiment with the CGM and they do like the sweet stuff or a carb that they fought really hard to get rid of. And they add it back in and they're like, Oh my gosh. And then they kind of crave a little bit. Okay. That did not happen to me at all. I'm so beyond that at this point. I'm, I'm sure if I kept eating, it'd be a different story, but so that's no big deal for me. I could do that. And it was not a, not a problem, but I thought that was really interesting that, you know, here, this, this, you know, dessert that I wanted more than anything. I would rather have that for my dinner or my breakfast or whatever. I'm seriously, that was how how bad this was, but, um, it didn't do much. It's weird. Amazing. And I think that's a, a really good point too, is that a lot of times people say, well, if I have, if I see this and how my body's responding to foods, 
I'm so scared. I'm never going to be able to have my favorite foods again. I'm going to have to give everything up. I'm going to hate what I eat. And I think a lot of people are surprised that it can be really freeing, right? Some of the foods that you're restricting based on whatever someone told you, maybe you respond really well with, and maybe you're able to find kind of this healthier relationship with food where you can balance things out, still enjoy things, but you're able to know exactly what foods work well for you. So I, think I love that. Yeah. I, I, I'm always practicing and, and preaching a, a healthy relationship with food. No one wants to be obsessed with no. food. You think about it all the time. But I think with, again, with data, you can empower yourself to know what's right. And that means more than anything. So um, it's always really exciting when people find that out, that maybe a food they've been restricting for the past five years, because they thought maybe it was a bad food, they respond really well with. Um, and so I think that's really cool. Yeah, I do too. And, and you're right, it is empowering. Um, it didn't upset me either way, you know, even with the food that was a little higher than I thought. But it does kind of, the most empowering thing for me is that because I now know that my diet is so, you know, tightly, you know, there's not much of a change that yeah. that makes me feel really good because now I can go, yeah, you know, and I, I know that it's, it's good. And, and all my blood tests and stuff like that are all really good. So, you know, my cholesterol, everything. So I, I, I feel very, very confident with that. I'm not saying everybody would be the same, but for me, it's good. But at the same time, if I so choose to maybe have a potato, you know, once every other month or two or whatever, it's not something I crave or I have to have or anything like that. But if I did, it's, it's not that big of a deal. And I you, know what to do. You have that flexibility, right? Yeah. You can, yeah. You can yourself enjoy the things that you brought, your body responded well to. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, it's my choice and, you know, more than likely it's not something I would choose to do very often just because I just don't care. But, you know, for my birthday, maybe I do want a chocolate tort. Maybe I'll have a couple of bites, whatever. For metabolic flexibility, you know, we gotta, gotta well, there you go. That's my excuse. (laughs) No, but there is something to that. Right. Um, I have I'm hearing more and more. Well, I mean, I've heard about this for a while, but I always kind of like, eh, whatever. But, um, a friend of mine just came out with another uh, book. Uh, it's keto flex. I think it's the name of it. Keto flex, keto flexing. And I think he's got some really valid points there. And I, kind of want to play around with that just out of curiosity to see you know how that affects me and then do another cgm you know like a couple of months down the road you know like do some tweaking and you know i want to do this every so often just because it's fascinating to me and the more you learn about your body the better and i will say that some people are like you know, what are you doing all this? You know, why are you always pricking your finger? What do you care about ketones? And that's silly. Any diet where you have to do that is ridiculous. Okay. I'm just trying to learn my body, Right. you know, and I'm not hurting anybody else. And the more information I know about this amazing thing called your body, the better choices I can make, because let's face it, we're not like our ancestors where we're out running around trying to get our food and, you know, we get lots of exercise and blah, 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 whatever. It's not like that anymore. This, this is present time. And you, because of the food that we have available now, we do have to do a little bit of, you know, research on what is best for our bodies, especially with the information out there that is so just not okay. Or for most. Okay. I'm sure. I agree 100%. And I think 
just looking at it through those lens, that lens, right? Like we're looking at this through metabolic health. We're looking at this to do what's best for our body, to listen to what our body is telling us. So it's not about restriction. It's not about, I need to exercise to control my weight or to make up for something. It's, I want to exercise for my metabolic health. I want to eat well because I know my glucose is going to make me stay, you know, energized and stable. And I'm going to avoid those big swings. And really when you're thinking of something that's sustainable, changes that are going to last, I think how you feel and your metabolic health are the most empowering, the most sustainable motivators versus anything else. So, and that's really what we're looking for is sustainability. Perfectly said. That's going to be a quote. That will be a quote <laughs> for sure. Okay. Let me, let me check my, um, Oh, oh, stress. What have you seen with stress responses? I will say that during the time I was wearing my CGM, we had to put my dog down. And I'm just going to say that was extremely, extremely traumatic. And I'm still having a hard time with it, but whatever. Um, but I didn't really notice that show up on the CGM, which I will be honest, I was shocked because I was devastated. I mean, watching her seize. And I mean, I was Oh, I'm so I was sorry. not handling it well, put it that way, but I didn't see it on my CGM. Right. And I think, first of all, I'm so, so sorry. I, my Thank dog, you. so I completely understand you playing right next to me right now. But, um, one thing that jumps out at me is you might have a really good stress tolerance. So when we think of the mm -hmm. things that influence our glucose, stress is one of the big ones, right? We've got food, we've got exercise, we've got sleep, fasting, but we've also got stress. And definitely seeing everyone's data throughout the pandemic has showed me that more than anything else. And so when wow. we think about stress, um, anything that our body perceives as a threat is usually going to cause threat, stress. And that's going to increase our cortisol hormone. And so what that hormone does, right? It allows us to have glucose in the blood to run away from that threat or to fight if we need to. So what stress does essentially is twofold. It's causing us to increase glucose output from the liver. So our body's releasing more glucose so that we have glucose available. Because remember, glucose is fuel. That's what's going to help us move. That's what's going to help us run away from a lion if that's our stressor. So it's allowing more glucose to be in the blood, but it also reduces insulin sensitivity. So it's not taking mm. as much glucose out of the blood. So again, both of those things are going to result in more glucose staying in the system in case we mm. needed to fight off that threat. So my first thought is you might have a very good stress tolerance. Your body might respond well to stress. And that's a really, really good thing. Sometimes if we have a lot of emotional stress in our life, and then we're doing other very acute stressors. So you know, extended fasting can be a, a, an acute stressor. Too heavy of exercise can be an acute stressor. So when it comes to stress, one of the things to consider is that this is a huge influencer on your glucose. And this is for a couple different reasons, right? So the main hormone associated with stress is cortisol. And I think we all hear about cortisol, but when it comes to glucose, it's pretty interesting what happens. So whenever our body is under stress, so any perceived threats on the body. Um, our glucose responds by um, being affected by that cortisol. So it's going to, two things are going to happen. The first one is that cortisol is going to cause more glucose output from the liver. So it does that for a very important reason, right? Glucose is our fuel. And so when we have more of it available, we're able to run from that threat, that stressor, if we need to. The second one is that it's going to reduce our insulin sensitivity. 
So what that means is less insulin is being um, used, less glucose is being used. So more glucose is staying in the blood. And that again is a really important evolutionary um, standpoint because it's going to keep more glucose in the blood to use if we really need to fight or flight. But in our modern society, <laughs> right, when we just have small stressors, chronic stressors, daily life stressors, and then you add, you know, a really terrible stressor, like what happened with your dog, this can cause glucose to stay elevated for a longer period of time because it's a chronic condition. So really we've seen this affect more people in this pandemic than we've ever seen anything. Um, and that's just because it's everywhere. You know, it's coming from all angles and our body is responding in this way that's not meant to be a chronic condition. So yeah, my first thought is you might have a really good stress tolerance. You might have some really good stress, stress management strategies up your sleeve. And I hope that's the case. Um, but sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. You know, I have really interesting data from my own glucose where you know, I was being bucked off on, on a horse and my glucose spiked all the way almost up to 140. No food, nothing. Ooh. It was just my body responding and preparing to fight that stressor if I really needed to. So we see it a lot and we can really see it in our fasting glucose. So those overnight values will start to creep mm. up. Uh, but what's interesting is, you know, stress management. So meditation, journaling, breath work, we, we see really big improvements. And a lot of times people will say, oh, that's kind of woo woo. I don't really want to do any of that. But when you see mm -hmm. that in your data, how much it's actually bringing glucose down or keeping it leveled, that's again, more motivation to stay with it, keep up with those strategies. Um. <laughs> yeah. right. Okay. Well, let me tell you something interesting. Okay. Speaking of cortisol, like I said, I've been testing my blood, you know, I'm just trying to weed out some stuff. And one thing that I did this probably, I don't know, four or five months ago. I don't even know what it was. I tested my cortisol. It was sky high, oh. not happy about that. And, uh, then I tested it again when I first put on my, um, continuous glucose monitor, cause I wanted to kind of compare like when I was doing this specific experiment, where was my cortisol, where was my other, some other things that I had tested. And again, and there was two different tests because it happened to include cortisol in both of them. It was just kind of one of those weird things. And one was, I think it was saliva. And the other one was, um, urine, if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember which one is what, but both of those came back high, oh. but yet I never saw when I felt stressed, I thought I was stressed. I never saw it really show up in any kind of a spike. Now I, you just kind of said that maybe some of those nights, my glucose was higher for right. that reason without seeing this necessarily. Yeah. Sometimes it'll just shift that baseline up. So if we're looking at average or if we're looking at those overnight values, that's really where stress is going to play a, sometimes an even bigger role. Hmm. That's very interesting. I'll have to go back and kind of see, because there was a few nights where I couldn't explain why, why was my glucose elevated? I, I, I didn't eat late. I didn't have alcohol. <laughs> we'll talk about that one in a minute, but uh, you know, there was no, no correlation to anything that I could come up with. Nothing that I had done different, whatever, but a couple of times my overnight glucose was higher. Maybe that I'll have to kind of see when that happened. That would be interesting. 
Okay, let's talk alcohol just really quick. Okay, one thing that I noticed, and this was interesting for me. Okay, yeah, I do. I have a few drinks. No, not the sugar drinks. No sugar in it. Pretty much just, uh, you know, tequila, vodka, whatever. But <laughs> so I noticed that my blood glucose overnight was low. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but the next day my blood sugar was low too, and my ketones were high. Right. Is that normal? It can be, yes. So when we're looking at alcohol, we see really different responses. Mm. I know I keep, I probably sound like a broken record, but really that's what we see. Okay. Um, there's a lot of different factors that we look at. The first is the type of alcohol. So it sounds like you had liquor, which is very, mm. very low sugar. You weren't adding any sugar to mm-hmm. it. The second is the state you're in. So if you're fasted or if you're fed. So a lot of mm. times, and what were you? Were you fasted or fed? I, had, I was fed. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. So one thing that really sticks out to me is that you're not consuming carbohydrates, right? You're consuming mm-hmm. a very protein based mm-hmm. diet. And that's usually the better thing that you can do if you are drinking. And the reason for mm-hmm. that, right? So if you are drinking, um, you know, those hard liquors that have no sugar, those are oxidized first by the body. So what I mean by that is those take oxidative priority. Our body's going to break those down quicker than anything else because we don't have storage space for mm-hmm. alcohol, right? And it's toxic. <laughs> it's toxic, right? So it prioritizes breaking that alcohol down. And so afterwards, after it breaks down that alcohol, that's when it will get to everything else that you consumed. So where we get into issues is where people will have either drinks that have sugar in them, right? So think your daiquiris, your pina coladas, mm-hmm. your margaritas. What I used to love, yep. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, because what's happening is your body's going to have that combination of sugar or in some cases, fruit juice, high fructose, which is metabolized by the liver. And then that um, alcohol that's metabolized by the liver. So first of all, that's a double whammy in the liver, not, not what we want. But second of all, um, that's going to be a lot for your body to process all at once. So mm. it breaks down the alcohol first and everything else is on the back burner. So after it's done with alcohol, then it will get to the rest of the foods that you ate. So if you're eating high carb with your alcohol, you will usually see an immediate dip, but then we'll see a spike because all mm. those foods that were on the back burner are breaking down later. Oh, okay. Protein based items. Those are also insulinogenic which means they also exhibit an insulin response. And so sometimes when people are just eating protein-based foods, we'll see actually a dip in glucose. So mm. I'm, from what you're saying, I'm thinking that combination of alcohol, which can cause that dip, and mm-hmm. maybe the combination with your normal diet, your normal foods cause that dip. So you saw this lower glucose value versus a spike that you probably expected when you first Yeah. Started. I did. I really thought that, especially eating it with food. Now I, I, all I had was hamburger patty. Yeah. So, I mean, I had nothing else with it. So I guess that, that makes sense. That's, that's very interesting. Hmm. That's the best strategy too. If you're going to drink, maybe, you know, if you go to a bar and you're drinking an, a drink, what do they have on the table? They have pretzels or they have little trail mix. That's not what we want, right? If they have nuts, you could do that, but really protein-based is what we want to aim for. So something that's not gonna be put on the back burner, something that's not gonna cause that spike later on. So pairing your alcohol, Mm. first of all, lower sugar alcohol, no fructose with protein-based foods, that's the best thing you could do if you're gonna drink. We're not advocating for that, no, but (laughs) but if you're gonna do it, there you go. That's good to know, that is good to know. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Okay. I want to ask this question. 
Um, what is the strangest thing that you've seen that has caused somebody's blood glucose to spike or multiple people for that? What, what did you find that was kind of like, what? That is a really, really great question. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind, if, if you've ever seen those Myers cocktail that people do, that big infusion of vitamin C that people will do just kind of from an immunity clinic or just that infusion, we will see people's glucose go up to 800. So not, spike up, not just a spike up to 140, 800. And the Ooh. important thing here is that this is a false spike. So this is an enzymatic reaction with the CGM. It's not a true spike. So your glucose is not truly 800, but for a lot of people, that's a really alarming spike. So yeah. we first started seeing this when these cocktails, Myers cocktails, or these uh, vitamin C infusions became really popular. Uh, people would be panicked, right? How was my glucose 800? But really when we looked at you know what they had, we could see that it was that vitamin C causing that reaction. So I would say that's the most interesting one. And now when I see it, I'm like, they don't even have to log what they had. I'm like, you had vitamin C. I can tell. Wow. <laughs> that is crazy. I would have never thought, wow, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Um, okay. Comes to my mind. Sorry. Sorry. One oh, no, no, go, go ahead. Um, is I had, uh, you've seen probably these drinks that are geared towards lowering after meal glucose. Um, they're, they're just getting on the market. So we'll probably be seeing a lot more of them, but I tried one of those just to kind of see experiment and see if it would work. I had it with a higher carb meal and it has chromium in it. So that's one of the things that is supposed to work, right? So chromium, uh, piclinate is supposed to, especially in presence of a chromium deficiency, cause a reduction in glucose. So it can cause an acute uh, improvement in glucose. And I, it's exactly what I saw. My glucose dipped oh. below 70. I felt fine, but, um, definitely due to that chromium. So hmm. not advocating for everyone to take chromium, but it's definitely something to explore. And, uh, maybe we'll see more of that in the future, but, uh, it has been shown for some people to improve their glucose. That's very interesting. Wow. Cool. Wow. Okay. And one thing I forgot to ask you, let me just pick this up real quick. What is the difference between like a blood monitor, ketone monitor, whatever, you know, the finger prick versus the CGM? I don't think people really understand what that difference is. I, I mean, obviously it's the, you know, you can see it continuously through the day, but I'm talking about how it's actually measured. Yes. That's a really good point. So aside from the you know, what you would think, the continuous that you're measuring, actually you're finger pricking your, your finger um, from a glucose meter. So a finger prick device, what that's measuring is the glucose in your plasma. So in your blood, but the CGM is measuring your interstitial fluid. So they're like sisters. They're not the same thing, but they're sisters, right? So when you think about that, the big thing to think about is that there's a lag time between blood and from this, the interstitial fluid. So sometimes people get hung up on, you know, when I'm, after I eat, I'm measuring on my finger and it's one number, and then I'm measuring on my CGM and it's another number. But there's this lag time that's a lot higher after you eat. And this can mean that what you're seeing in your blood glucose can be one thing, and then 45 minutes later, that's what your CGM is going to tell you. So it's kind of flowing from that plasma into the interstitial fluid. And so that lag time when you first wake up is maybe zero to 20 minutes, right? It's not that long, but after exercise or after eating, it can be up to about 45 minutes long. Wow. 
Okay. About. They're, they're not the same thing. Um, they can tell you similar information, but they're a little different uh, compartments. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay. I was like all through the day, whenever I would check and I, I kind of just periodically, I was just curious about ketones and, you know, yeah. having so much protein, you get kicked out all that. But, um, I, I was using like 20 minutes. So the whole entire day, no matter what was going on, whenever I, you know, took the blood test and I would go 20 minutes and then I would look and kind of compare them. So yeah. that may not have been long enough. Yeah, in the morning, that's usually pretty perfect. And everyone responds a little bit differently. Um, maybe based on the diet that you're on, it wasn't as big of a, a, a jump, mm. right? But usually they'll say, you know, the average lag time is between zero and 45 minutes. So they kind of just give you this, this window uh, from the research that we've seen. And so we always say when they line up perfectly, that's a unicorn. That's not <laughs> a typical thing. So sometimes people can chase that perfect match, but really you know, you're looking at your glucose meter for that, that one snapshot in time. And then you're looking at your CGM for that time lapse. So they're giving you different things. Both of them are super important, but they might never match perfectly. Yeah. And I think that, that, that can be a little confusing. Um, but you're really looking at the changes, not so much the actual physical number, you know, like, like how I was kind of a little bit concerned about my baseline, but that was continuous. It wasn't one day, it wasn't a snapshot or whatever. And I wasn't necessarily comparing it with a blood meter or whatever, but you know, there, there is that difference. And so it makes it hard to say that the CGM is calibrated because I was seeing the different numbers, and, but I was using the 20 minutes. And so Catherine was like, well, do you want me to go ahead and you know, change it up. And I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to compare it to the information that I get from the CGM and just not worry about the, the blood glucose number on the fingerprint, uh, the finger yeah. prick. Yeah, exactly. Because when you think about those big trends, right? So your delta values, your area under the curve, your um, standard deviation, those are not affected by the absolute mm -hmm. number. It's really more about the trends. That's going to tell you more than any one number will. So for some people we have, you know, had that or incorporated that manual calibration just to allow to us to sync those up a little bit, but really we're focusing on those high level, big picture items that we mentioned. Yeah. And that makes way more sense. And I totally agree. And that's why I was like, eh, I'm, I'm just going to look at, at trends. Trends are huge with everything. I mean, you can't just look at one isolated thing, one, you know, isolated weighing number from the scale or one, you know, one ketone reading. You can't look at that isolated because, you know, it's a snapshot in time, one time. It only tells so. you too much. Yeah, exactly. Well, Carly, thank you so much for coming on. It has been a pleasure and so fun and informative. And I, I absolutely love the company. I love who I worked with. Uh, I loved what I learned. Uh, I love the whole experience. And I'm not just saying that. I, I, I don't, you know, talk about BS when I don't mean it. I really love the experience. So I very much appreciate you coming on and uh, digging a little deeper in this. And y'all, so fun. I feel like we could just talk all day. So, oh, I, I know, right? And I feel bad because I know I've kept you longer than your time. But okay. it was really fun talking to you, and I'm so glad that you love the company and I do. have learned a lot about your own body. That's what we hope to bring to everyone who tries NutriSense. So. Absolutely. So, hey, y'all, while you're here, subscribe to my channel, and I'm going to have all of Carly's information with, with NutriSense and, and the whole bit uh, below. So, don't worry about that. And again, 
thank you so much, Carly. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And you have a great rest of your day. You too.